Welcome to the British American Football Coaches Association podcast, a resource designed to support both British football coaches and coaches from around the world. This podcast features special guests discussing techniques, scheme, philosophies and culture for the sport of American football to help develop and grow the game worldwide. Now here's your host, Adam Lillis. Hello and welcome to the BAFCA Coaching Podcast. Once again, a reminder that the BAFCA Virtual Convention will be happening next weekend on the 3rd, 4th and 5th of July. Proves to be a great event with lots of pre-recorded clinics and live clinics for everyone to tune into. So do make the effort to try and attend that. Today we've got Coach Jeff Reinbold talking about special teams. So let's listen in to Coach Reinbold and see what he has to say. Hello and welcome to the BAFCA Coaching Podcast with me, your host, Adam Lillis. I'm excited to be joined today by the Hamilton Tiger Cats Special Teams Coordinator and all-round BAFCA friend, Coach Jeff Reinbold. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm outstanding. How are you, Adam? I'm doing really well, thank you. Just trying to get through these uh, difficult times, um, but can't complain. So, before we get into it, most of the British... Uh, football community know who you are and know your story but for those listeners that might not know who you are why don't you give us a bit of background into how you got into football and your coaching journey up until today's day <laughs> man that's a lot I might that might be all all day <laughs> to talk about every place I've been and every <laughs> the whole journey it's been a lot of it's been a lot of fun frankly and it's been an amazing ride um I like a lot of kids like you probably like just most about everybody fell in love with the game when I was small, very small, seven, eight years old. And, uh, you know, watching it on TV for the first time and then uh, playing in the street with your buddies and, you know, get, it just grew from there. Uh, you could, the first you could play where I grew up was in South Bend, Indiana, which is a home of a pretty good college football team called Notre Dame. Um, was seventh grade and so when I went to seventh grade I <laughs> I didn't find this out until I played my last game but uh, my dad was in professional baseball so he was gone and my mom uh, was home she was taking care of we had five kids and you, you went to the first day of school and you could join the band or you could you know do all kinds of student activities and football the football team was one of the things that you could do and uh, so you had to sign and you had to get a parent's signature to allow you to, you know, come out for the football team. And I took the paper home and <laughs> I, I, you know, I was probably, I probably had ADD and HDHD and every other D that you could probably have, but they didn't, they didn't have the diagnosis back in those days. So, um, you know, I was pretty determined little kid and I was really small and, uh, my mother was really worried that I would get hurt. So she wasn't going to let me play. And I didn't, like I said, I didn't find this out till much later. The high school or the junior high coach was a friend of my dad. So she called him on the sly and said, uh, you know, what's, what's the story with this football thing? You know, Jeff wants to play. I don't think he's big enough. I think he's going to get hurt. And the, the coach said, um, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. You sign the paper. He, he can come out. The first three practices, there's no pads. And, you know, after the three practices, we'll cut him and then I'll be the bad guy. And, you know, you, you don't have to, <clears throat> you don't have to look bad. Well, it must've been a slow, must've been a slow year, a small team or whatever, but after three days, they didn't cut me. And so my mother spent the next 
I don't know how many years it was before I finally stopped playing. I uh, just kind of mad at that guy and, and just praying that her little kid didn't get hurt. And I went on, played college football at the University of Maine and uh, had a great experience playing for a guy named Jack Bicknell, who many NFL Europe fans know as, was the head coach of Barcelona and then also the head coach of the Scottish Claymores. And uh, he's the one that really got me into coaching. And after I was done playing, I started my journey coaching. I coached uh, in college football for about 10 years, then made the jump to the pros and have been, uh, except for, a, you know, four years at, at SMU and three years at the University of Hawaii. I've been in pro football since 1991. So it's been a lot of fun. I've had a lot of great kids and a lot of great experiences. And probably the highlight to me has been was with the time I spent in NFL Europe because it opened up my eyes to a lot of things. And, and uh, I really became a believer in the, the growth of the game at that point and helping to develop the game and develop players from around the world. And, uh, you know, then I went to London and worked in the NFL London office and started working with the BAFCA coaches and the university coaches. And uh, it's really been a lot of fun. I've learned so much from my time in Europe. It's been incredible. And then just by fluke, I got a chance to do a Sky broadcast one one weekend that has turned into a 10-year career of, of being an analyst on Sky and after our season's over with. Fantastic. And you just explain there, you've had a long and very successful career in the pros and college level in uh, NFL Europe. Who are some of the coaches that you've worked with or worked under that have been especially influential to you as a coach? And what are some of the lessons that you learned from them? Well, I think, you know, you go back and uh, like the first, I guess the first big impression guy was my father because, as I said, he, he had a different, he was in a different sport, but he was at the professional level and my dad was probably the best teaching coach I've ever seen on the field in terms of being able to break a skill down and help a young player get better at his, at his fundamentals. Um, he had an uncanny ability to communicate with players uh, and to be positive and be, you know, to be tough on them and drive them and push them to, to excellence, but to also be, do it in a positive way. Uh, so that was my first big influence. Then I think Jack, secondly, uh, because – uh, he he was so good to me when when I was a you know young college freshman, half a country away from home, and uh, you know making the jump to Division One college football. And uh, he really he really looked out for me. Uh, then when I got into the pros, there have been a lot of guys, but probably none bigger than than uh, Dick Vermeil, who I had a chance to get to know in Philadelphia, and then worked for in Kansas City, and and you know follow very closely, and I still very still consider him to this day the probably the greatest influence in my life he he was one of the best communicators the best uh he he had coaching down to i think really to a science um and was a great x and o coach but is more known for his ability to motivate and you know get to players to to really reach a player deeply in their in their essence and i think that's a rare rare skill in the game especially today Sure. Um, do you have a coaching philosophy that you hang your hat on regardless of where you coach? Yeah, I think, I think it really comes down to a couple of things, fun, fundamental things that I saw in Jack, uh, things that he embodied, and the things that Coach Vermeil had codified. In, he gave us all a, uh, in our notebooks, in our, our, you know, our notebook, our uh, 
whether it was an offensive book, a defensive book, or a special teams book, he had a special section in there for the coaches on coaching. And he had really written down his thoughts on coaching and things that he had found over his career had been, uh, you know, beneficial to him and kind of the way that he wanted us to act and perform and, and do our jobs. And one of the first things he said was, and, and he would repeat this numerous times to us, is you must reach before you can teach. And what he was saying was, you realize this is a game played by human beings. It's an imperfect game played by imperfect human beings and coached by imperfect human beings. And so the first thing in order to help a player get better and to help, you know, help, he didn't focus primarily on winning. What he focused on was improvement. And I think the great coaches really do that. And so he said that you must reach before you can teach, which means you have to develop a rapport. You have to be able to, to, to reach out to the athlete. There has to be a trust built uh, between you and the athlete. If the athlete's going to, you know, he's, if he's going to risk enough, if he's going to go out on a, on the edge enough, you know, athletes, none of us as human beings, you know, like being criticized. So if you're, if there's criticism, it has to come in a constructive fashion and it has to be so that the athletes see the only sees that the reason you're criticizing isn't to beat him down. It's to try and help him get better. And he, he had some things that were really outstanding. He said, you know, um, we attack problems. We don't attack people. And then he further went on and defined a problem as anything that keeps you from playing at your highest level. And again, you notice he said, didn't say winning. He said, anything that keeps you from playing at your highest level. So he would define what some of those things would be. It may be time management. It may be uh, focus. It may be distractions outside of football. It may be anything. And, and so Anything that affected your ability to play at the highest level was something that he was going to bear into real quickly and be really forceful about eliminating those, eliminating those aspects that would keep you from being a good player. Um, and then, again, as, as, I, as I watched him build his teams in, with the Rams and with Kansas City, and then I saw those done live, I, you know, his teams with the Eagles – you know, he told me about after the fact, but uh, again, he, he has been an unbelievable resource to me. And I, I, I think one day when, when I'm about done with, with uh, my career, I'm going to publish his coaching manual because I think it's so valuable to so many people. And every, I think, I think it's something every young coach should read. And frankly, uh, it's something that I go back and read every year before we go to training camp. I go back in and I read it from page to page every word of it uh, and make notes on the side of it and you know to get myself refocused and you know re-energized for another another football season sure that's great um this this podcast episode is primarily going to be focusing on special teams you you are a special teams coordinator mm -hmm. first, first and foremost why is special teams so important in the game of football well, I mean, if you really, if you really analyze football, and I, and I think that one of the things that's changed in me as a coach from the time I started until now is I always loved football. I mean, I've always lo deeply loved the game, everything about the game, you know, the preparation, the practice, the hitting, the, the pressure of it, all of it. I loved all of it. But I think that where I've learned, what I've learned over the time in my career is 
to, to study the game and to break down the game. And when you really learn the game of football and you, you know, and that has to, you have to, that takes time. But when you really learn the game of football, you, re you recognize that regardless of the rule changes, regardless of the style of offense or defense or kicking, that football is a field position game and nothing affects field position more, I guess, in a greater way, let me say it that way, than special teams play because that's where the greatest amounts of field position are changed. When you kick off, and for us, we kick off from uh, the 25-yard line in pro football, you know, there's 60 or 70 yards of field position that's going to be exchanged on that play. When you punt the football, you're hoping that you can exchange 43 yards of field position. And I try and explain it to the players in such a way that, that they can – you know, they don't think that way because they shouldn't. They're young players and they're, you know, they're into their own game. But I ask, I ask every year when we go to a meeting, I say, okay, anybody name me the receiver in the, in the league this year that had the most yards per catch? And somebody will raise their hand and they'll say it's John Smith had a 17.2 yards per catch average. And I'd say, okay, and how many times did he catch the ball? And they say he caught the ball 48 times or whatever it was. And then I do the math for him. I said, well, let me, let me just say this. The leading punter in the league, his net punting average was 42-point-something yards. And he punted, he punted the ball more than that guy caught passes. And he, did, he, he, he had a greater change in the game than a 17-yard compl completion percentage. So, but when they start to see it in that realm, then they recognize just how important, you know, the game is playing complementary football and that's a term that everybody uses now but really a lot of people don't even understand what it means complementary football is where the defense the offense and the special teams all combine to complement one another and again it's a game of field position it will always be a game of field position and so I don't care what offense you run if you start every drive inside your 10 yard line your success ratio in getting the ball down the field and scoring a touchdown is much lower than if you start the ball at your opponent's 30-yard line. So when we talk about huge, huge changes in field position due to the return game, due to the ability to punt the ball correctly, cover kicks, all of that stuff, not to mention the scoring aspect of it, 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 it doesn't take, you know, as we say, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that special teams really are in many cases the most deciding factor in a game sure and that follows on nicely to my next question you started touching on it there maybe some of the less disciplined teams or less experienced teams focus on offense and defense and don't have as much buy-in on special teams is there anything you do as a coordinator that help create that buy-in not just from your players but from your coaching staff as well well i think uh, first of all let me let me just kind of go back into the history of the thing the first special teams coordinator in the national football league was dick Vermeil. he was a young assistant coach uh in college uh and he got an opportunity he was at ucla as an assistant he got an opportunity to work for george allen with the la rams he was the first coach hired specifically and his only job was to coach the special teams units with the los angeles rams and george allen was that much of a forward thinker so it's always been big time important for coach Vermeil and any of us who have been, you know, who are branches off the Vermeil coaching tree, you notice that 
special teams play is always an important factor to us. They say it's three or third of the game, right? And that's a cliche because it's actually a little less than a third of the game when you look at total plays, but the impact of the game or the impact that it has on the game is probably more than a third of the game. And in the Canadian football league where I coach the Canadian professional league, it's even greater because the kicking rules are much different and you have many more opportunities to score, possess the ball, all of it. And what happens, I think so many times is coaches you know, they read a book and they say, okay, it says in, in this book by um, Brian Billick, let's say, that, and, and Coach Billick's a great football coach. It says, you know, you got to concentrate on your special teams. And they read it and they go into their team and they say, okay, we're going to concentrate on special teams. Then two weeks later, they're hardly doing any special teams at all because they're so caught up in the offense and the defense, right? And uh, that's a natural progression. What we say to our players is, guys, we have broken the game down so far that I can give you nine transferable skills that every football player has to be able to perform, whether it's offense, defense, and special teams. And because those fundamentals are so critical to your success as a player, we're going to continue to work on those every single day. So whether it was the first day of training camp or the day before we played the championship game last year, what we call the Grey Cup in Canada, we were doing the same fundamental skill drills. And I think that's something that young coaches really need to look at and really examine is what drills are you teaching your players? And then do those drills directly relate to their success on the field? Because if they don't, then you need to get rid of the drill. doesn't mean it's not a good drill. It just means it's not relevant to what you have because the thing that every special teams coach and every coach fights against is you, f you don't feel like you have enough time with your players, in particular individual skill time. So we make a huge emphasis on that. Let me just say this. Coaching, great coaching, great high-level coaching is really selling. You're selling the culture of the team. You're selling the head coach's message. You're selling your message. You're constantly selling to the players to get buy-in, to create that word you just used, buy-in. And buy-in is created when trust is established. There's absolutely, you might snake charm them. You might, you know, you might come in there and, and, you know, give a great presentation and they come out of there, well, wow, coach knows what he's talking about. Then you go on the field and there's no follow-through. You lose it extremely fast. Buy-in is hard to gain and it's easy to lose. And so we, we concentrate every day on reinforcing the behaviors that we want and extinguishing the behaviors that we don't want and trying to do that through a positive way. And, you know, I could give you 9,000 little ex examples of the fun that we have with it, you know, whether, we're, whether it's, you know, how we reward players based upon their performance, how we, you know, again, I say this to our players all the time. I said, all right, and this, you're getting into some fun stuff now. We'll have we'll be sitting in a staff in a big excuse me uh, team meeting, and all special teams meetings. Everybody's in the room, and I'll say, okay, you stand up, and, and uh, you know, what's on your football card? And the guy will stand up and he goes, it says, I'm, I'm Alex Johnson, and I'm a linebacker, right? And then I'll get about five or six of them to stand up, and I'll say, see, that's the way it always is. Not a single guy has 
right guard on the punt team or, or, you know, L5 on the kickoff team or, you know, gunner on the punt. Nobody ever has that on their card. But you guys all have linebacker, running back, DB, offensive lineman, whatever. But the reality of it is, for some of you, your number one contribution to this football team will be as a special teams player. Your opportunity to make a professional roster will be as a special teams player. Your opportunity to continue to get paychecks after you're no longer a starter on offense or defense maybe as a special teams player. And then I give them examples of guys around the NFL that, you know, that, that they can look at. And, you know, like Slater up in New England, he has – I mean, he's, they list him as a receiver. He's one reason why he's, you know, continuing to play as long as he's played in New England, which is like 12 years. And it has to do with the fact that he's a great special teams player. He very rarely steps on the field as a, as a wide receiver. So when you have guys who make significant contributions, you have to reward them and you have to reward them publicly in front of their teammates. Another Dick Vermeilism for you, and I think this is every coach needs to understand this. And coach used to say it this way, he'd say, players have an incredibly high tolerance for praise. <laughs> and and it, it, it's a little play on words, but it's really true. You know, we talk about a player's pain tolerance his ability to play through pain. Well, they all have an extremely high uh, praise tolerance. And, you know, you get far more out of praising an athlete when he deserves it than you do, uh, you know, beating him down all the time. Sure. And I just want to touch on one of those things uh, when you were talking about the, the player cards and they list their offensive or defensive mm -hmm. position, not special teams necessarily. Uh, have you been a coach that, just uses offense and defensive starters on special teams just because they're the best person for the job, or do you have to rely on backups more? Well, I, I think it's a, every situation's an individual situation because you got to understand. Here's the reason why I love special teams coaching so much. Number one, you work with every unit on the field, even the quarterbacks. Sometimes as holders, you're going to have you're going to have an interaction with every position group on the field. Other than the head coach, you're the only guy on the staff that has that opportunity. So that comes with some understanding. And you the, the understanding has to be that if you're going to use players, you have to give them an opportunity to do what they can do. Don't put a kid on special teams that's not ready to play and hurt your team. However, you also have to understand you have to temper that with if I have a starter and he's playing 65 plays of defense, I can't ask him to play another 35 plays of special teams. I just think we play 18 games in a season and their bodies just can't hold up to that. So I think it's real important that you have an idea of what is best for the entire team. And as a special teams coach, I think you have a better appreciation for that than any other coach on the staff with the exception of the head coach, because you deal with all of the personality, you deal with all of the positions, and you deal with, you are an offensive coach and a defensive coach, because your coverage teams are defensive downs, and your offensive, you know, your return game is an offensive play. Your kicking, your field goal is an offensive play. Your field goal defend is a defensive play. No other coach on the field coaches both offense and defense during a season in, in professional football.
So I think it's a unique, unique situation and a unique environment, and it requires a unique skill set, frankly. Absolutely. Um, as you alluded to earlier, time is precious, and doesn't matter mm-hmm. what team you are, doesn't matter what level you coach at, people often complain that there's not enough time. And you know what the situation's like in British football. Teams only practice mm-hmm. once, maybe twice a week. If you were to focus or prioritise the different le- uh, areas of special teams, what order would you put them in and why? Well, I think the thing, number one, you always got to make sure. That, I don't think there's – I can prove this to you statistically that, that if you look at football in the last 25 years at every level, from high school to college to pros – that the quickest way to get beat is to get a punt blocked. And the success rate of teams that have a punt blocked in a game is very, very low. It's less than, less than 30%. So your number one thing has got to be, you got to be able to pr- protect the punter and efficiently get the ball punted. And then your coverage aspect comes into play. And then thirdly, your, re- your return aspect. Now we have been extremely fortunate that we've had great returners everywhere I've been. Our, our guy last year, Frankie Williams, who we got from the, from the Indianapolis Colts, was the special teams player of the year. And, you know, he had over 30 what, are, what were classified as big play returns. And that's a punt, of over, punt return of over 15 yards or a kickoff return of over 30 yards. He had 30 of them in an 18-game season and scored six touchdowns on, in the kicking game. So, you know, he, he became a huge weapon for our football team. And we've been able to have those kind of guys everywhere I've been. So I think that I'd start with the punt game. Then I'd work on the kickoff cover game. And then my return game, I'd work from there. But here's what's – and I really want to make this important point to the coaches. Special teams is hard to practice because it's so many guys moving around and so much field covered, right? When you're in team – you got 22 guys, and they're within 10 yards of one another, and typically the play doesn't go for more than 10 or 15 yards. When you've got special teams, you've got 22 guys on the field, and the play may go – it's spread from sideline to sideline, and it may go for 40 yards or 60 yards on a kickoff. Well, that's a lot of moving parts and a lot of coaching that needs to get done on the run. So I'd say, number one, employ the other coaches on the staff to help you coach the special teams. Delegate your responsibility. And then furthermore, break the game down into the fundamentals and work at the fundamentals. And then maybe at the end of the week or the day before you play, do your team work, like your team punt, your team kickoff return, your team. Because if otherwise, you can never get enough reps to be good. So for us, we don't do any teamwork at all. And I mean none. We don't come together as a special special teams unit like the kickoff cover team or the return team right until the last day before we play a game and usually we only get three or four reps at that because they've gotten so much more work in individual fundamental work as we break it apart on the field so if you watched our special teams practice you'd see number one it's extremely organized and it moves very fast and everybody's got a place to be and a pl- and job to do so we're all working. There's no, you know, 22 guys on the field and, uh, you know, 40 other guys standing around on the sideline. Um, he, this is important, Coach. I think that, that the coaches out there need to understand. You have to define to your players very clearly the speed at what you want a drill done, right? 
we, de we define it into three separate speeds, what we call quick through, which is what we used to call when I played walk through, but we don't, we don't use that term walk, but quick through is nothing more. We're in our stances. We're coming off the ball. We're doing all the things we need to do, but it's at a quick walking pace with good pad level, good, I, you know, I fixes, you know, good hand placement, whatever it is, right. Good knee band, everything. It's got to look exactly like, it's like you took the film and you just slowed it down. Right. Then we have what we call tracking tempo and tracking tempo is full speed, but nobody hits the guy with the ball. He's allowed to run. And we do it that way because that allows all of our people to get work. Say you're the backside gunner and the ball's kicked away from you. If the guy that goes down there and fronts the ball just grabs the ball here and he can't run, then 10 other, 10 other cover guys and 10 other guys blocking don't get to do their job because the play's over with, right? So we say get in position, show us on film that you can make the play, then let the ball carrier run so everybody gets a chance to work, right? That's part of practicing like a pro, right? Then the third tempo, and we don't use it very much, is what we call game day. And that's full on, just like we were playing on a game. We'll do that a little bit in training camp. Now, those are the three speeds that we talk about. Now, we also define this. I will tell you the tempo we want in the drill and the tempo we want between the drills, right? So that's really, really important. And an athlete cannot give you what you want until you tell him what you want and then show him what you want. And again, kids today are visual learners. That's the way they process information. They're all on their computer screens. They're all on their phones all the time, right? So they need to be shown what you want. If you say, I want, I want you to hustle between drills. Well, Adam, you and, me, you and me may define hustle differently. For me, it may be, you know, jog over to the next drill. For you, it's full speed. You want, you, you want me to sprint to the next drill. Well, if you don't clearly show him and define what, he, what you want him to do, how can you hold him accountable for that? And I think that's really, really, really important that coaches understand that. You cannot hold a player accountable for something that you did not clearly define for him right? What the expectation was, what the technique should, should look like, and then slowly walk them through that technique so that they feel their body doing it correctly. Sure. Um, with special teams, as you were just saying, there's a lot of transferable skills from offense and mm -hmm. defense, blocking, tackling, tracking, running, all those type of things. But the obvious unique situation is those specialist roles of, you know, the kicker, punter, long snapper, right your holder, your right. return men. How involved are you as a special teams coordinator in coaching those specialists and those skills? Or do you use the staff? And are there any tips you can perhaps give some of the coaches that are listening? Well, I, I think, number one, like you said, it, involve your staff. Get everybody going. Get everybody involved. If you want buy-in from the other coaches, get them involved in the coaching. Because once they coach a drill, you know, it's kind of like they put their name on that now. Right. And so we get all of our coaches involved. We do a thing we call county fair. And this is something I learned when I, you know, when I went to the University of Maine to play college football and we started, you know, practice with it sometimes and spring practice. We did it every day. It was basically 
either four or five stations, depending on in the fall, it was five because we had more guys in the spring. It was four because we had fewer guys and there were about eight or 10 guys at a station and they would do a, they would practice a particular skill for, let's say two minutes, three minutes. And then there would be a whistle. They would break and they would run to the next station, then practice another skill. So that over the course of, let's say you've got four stations, you're going two minutes a station, and then you get, you build in your you know, 15 second transition time between, between spaces, you can get an awful lot of work done and practice a great number of skills and get coached by every coach on the staff in eight minutes. I mean, you can get an incredible amount of work done. And we employ that county fair belief and, and we do it. Like I said, if you would have come to our last practice before the great cup, you know, our last workday practice, you would have seen us out there doing county fair and working on fundamentals, you know, that let, again, if you study the way people learn and if you study excellence, there's some things that you start to see. There's a, book uh, called by Malcolm Gladwell called The Tipping Point, and it talks about the 10,000-hour rule. And then there's another book I'm reading right now that's a fantastic book. It's called The Talent Code. And it's about how we learn as human beings, how we develop skill as human beings, and why some people seem to develop faster or better than others. And we always, you know, just say we slough it off to, oh, they're just a gifted guy. And it's not that. It's we have a specific, our bodies, our minds, our neuromuscular system all learn in a specific way. And coaches can design drills to maximize the learning ability of their player and maximize the time that they have with their player. And you know what's shocking about it, coach, is some of it isn't doing the thing faster, it's doing it slower. And we've incorporated that into our, you know, into our practices and into our teaching. That's brilliant. Thanks, Coach. I'm going to start wrapping up there. I know you've got things you need to do. Um, but before we go, I'd like to give our coaches the opportunity to share their social media handles in case listeners want to get a hold of you or follow you. Uh, have you got a social media handle that you'd like to share? Yeah. And, and again, I'll throw this out there to all of the BAFTA coaches. And, and let me say this, because I think this is important that you guys understand this. You are the best coaches in the world to me. And um, I don't, I'm not saying that as a, to patronize anybody. I'm saying it because I believe it. What I saw when I went to Europe and when I went on a tour around, Tony Allen, my boss in, in international player development, sent me on a tour around England, around the UK. And uh, excuse me, I always screw that up. But uh, as, I, as I went around the UK, I saw guys that, you know, practiced on fields with no lines, with seven kids at practice, with all things that would an American coach would have said, I'm not doing this. I, I, this is, I got no, I got no bags. I got no sleds. I got no lines on the field. I got, I got, they, they would, they would look at all the things they didn't have and they would get frustrated. And most of them would have just walked away. And most of the kids would have never played. I mean, they would have said, I'm not playing on a team with, where seven guys show up for practice. But what I saw in Europe was, number one, kids that were really, really passionate to play the game because they had to pay to play, right? They had to buy their own equipment. They had to do all that. And I saw coaches who didn't get paid, who found ways to coach without 
all of the coaching aids and all of the film and like I said, bags and sleds and managers and equipment people and train. I mean, it was amazing. I was like so impressed by what I saw on the field. And I think you guys have done a great job of growing the game. I've seen that the way coaches now interact differently than when I first came to Europe. When I first came to Europe, it was like, you know, coaches kind of kept to themselves and they, they didn't talk to one another very much and share ideas and all that. That's really changed. Now it's much more like it is in the United States because we all learn football on a, on, you know, on a napkin in a bar somewhere, having a beer with a guy and exchanging ideas. So I see that starting to happen now where it's about the game and it's not about my team. And, um, you know, I, I've been incredibly impressed. I want to help. I want to continue to have a relationship with the coaches in, in BAFCA in particular. And probably the easiest way to do that is follow me on Twitter. Uh, at Jeff underscore Reinbolt. Uh, you can follow me on at Sky Sports NFL. You can follow me at Jeff Reinbold on Instagram. Uh, my Facebook page is a fan page, so I can't interact on that. But certainly on Instagram and Twitter, uh, I'd be more than happy to help in any way I can possibly help. I do, all, uh, you know, I do Zoom clinics for people that have asked. Um, you know, and and again, I, I, to me we're all brothers in this thing. We're all family members in this thing. We all are trying to do the same thing and that's improve and get better. And I get better every time I talk to coaches over there and, and hopefully we're able to pass on some of the things that have been given to us, you know, by some really great coaches. Brilliant. Thanks coach. I know a lot of the listeners will, will love that and we'll start hitting you up and get some advice from an experienced coach. Um, I, I certainly I pre- hope, you, hope so. I appreciate it. Uh, I'll let you get on uh, wherever 2020 gives us and wherever you end up and wherever you're coaching. I hope you have a successful season. We can start getting back to the new normal, whatever that is. Yeah, let's say, let's get back on the field, man. I can't wait. And I know you guys had your season canceled, but that doesn't mean you can't get better. And as soon as you got access your players and, you know, uh, again, if I can help in any way, don't hesitate to give me a holler. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you again, coach. Chat soon and stay safe. All right. Aloha. Thank you. Thank you again to Coach Ryan Bold for taking time to talk to us. Another reminder about the BAFCA Coaching Convention next weekend. And tune in next time for another BAFCA Coaching Podcast episode.